On behalf of Rebuilding Your Life Radio and the Train Your Brain, Claim Your Power Calls, I'm your host, Susan Shureko. Welcome. We're going to be speaking with author uh, Terrence uh, Dingwall today, who has written an autobiographical a book. It's autobiographical in nature, but it's made up of many stories that come close to a, a time period of probably 100 years. Um, start, he starts with stories from his family back in the 1920s and then comes across time to the present day. Um, just as a note that as a listener, you may have stories like that that you have been thinking you wanted to share with the world. So if you'd like help exploring that possibility um, or on some other dream that you may have, I'm going to give you something at the end of this program that you can use to take you from your, your first action toward your dream right away. Um, as I mentioned, Terrence Dingwall is joining us from Australia. Uh, he's a motorcycle enthusiast who spent 20 years in the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and he is the author of two books, The Tome of Ding and an offshoot, The Tome of Ding Poems. So in these books, Terence is sharing his life stories that began in the 1920s, his time in the Air Force, and finally to his very adventurous life on a motorcycle that continues to this day. So let's put our hands together to welcome Terence. Hello, Terence, welcome. Thank you, Dave. You know, am I am I correct that the uh, the Tome of Ding was your first book? Uh, correct, yeah. Guilty, Your Honor. Okay. And why did you call it the Tome of Ding? For a one-fingered typist, a tome is a very large book. <laughs> think, think of the old medieval Bibles that were chained to the church. <laughs> and how many pages is the Tome of Ding? About 500. Wow. Wow, that's a long book. Um, I gather your family history covers a, a rough period of history in there, the earlier portion, uh, from from the British colonials, who, who they were, they were considered British colonials, but this had some impact on their life and where you lived and whatnot. Um, when did they migrate? Where did they migrate from and to where? My uh, father's uh, parents migrated from Scotland and went to Mauritius. And then uh, further on down the track, ended up in the Seychelles. My mother's uh, um, great, 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 whatever you, uh, shot off from France, I think, in the time of the revolution and shot off to the, to the Seychelles directly. So the family is literally um, half Scottish, half half French. Okay, and then how? what happened to your parents when they, once they went to the Seychelles? Uh, my um, uh, grandfather on my, on my father's side was uh, um, a shopkeeper and my grandfather on the mother's side was actually a, uh, a jeweler. So um, they're sort of like a different uh, strange, strains of the family doing different things. But uh, you, you you make a business out in the sticks in the island, miles from anywhere, you, you gotta, you got to be pretty good at what you do to, to, to succeed because uh, there's not much there really. Sort of, um, 
uh, you're dealing with a tropical country, you're dealing with uh, uh, things like um, coconut copra, you've got uh, um, vanilla, you've got uh, you know, ex exporting dried fish. <laughs> I've been dried fish for my gran granny uh, in Africa um, in a sealed, uh, uh, what do you call them, a, 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 a sealed with lead solder. Um, a can. So yeah, she literally hacked open this can. It has this beautiful smell of dried fish all the way from the Seychelles. So that's how we got our dried fish. <laughs> now they didn't stay in the Seychelles forever, though. Where did they go next? Um, well, my father's brother had stayed home during the war, and he went uh, eventually to Kenya. And uh, told my father when he came back from the war, there's a good life there if you, if you work hard, if you want to make something for yourself. So the Seychelles economy had hit very badly by the war because all the shipping had been stuffed up by the, um, all the, the disruption from the war. There's artificial um, vanilla available and all sorts of artificial stuff was, you know, sizal uh, was being replaced by nylon and things like this. So he went to Africa and uh, got a job on a farm as a farm manager. So a farm manager comes mechanic. So he's a jack of all trades and a master of all of them, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, made a good living there. But uh, um, in, in those days, the, the Kenyan economy was going through a bit of a change because that had been similarly affected by the war. And... Uh, they sort of like uh, uh, move from farm to farm as um, the family grew. Uh, you need more money. So you'd ask the farmer for, for a wage increase and they'll say, well, you've already done your good things for the farm, but uh, you can go somewhere else and do good, good things for others. And so forth, you, you move up the ladder. And uh, so we moved seven times. Wow. Uh, that's between the, the 1949 and, and the 1964. So it's a lot of moving, but um, you know, when you're a child over there, you're usually sent to boarding school because uh, the farm is miles from, from anywhere. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the boarding schools sort of like uh, were expensive, so more more ching ching money. <laughs> and uh, with six children in the family, there wasn't much thing to go around. So you had to make do with what you had, and uh, I've learned to, to use my imagination, and uh, it's kept me sort of uh, sane this world all these years. Yeah. Now, that was a very challenging period in, in Kenya, wasn't it? Well, in those days, you had the, the um, colonial uh, change from uh, a representative parliament. They had something called LegCo over there. And the LegCo was uh, made up of about, uh, I think it was 12 Europeans and about um, three Indians and one African. So th they wanted to change it by increasing the number of, of, of Africans to better uh, reflect the change in the population. When you had, the, let's call it 7 million Africans and about 300,000 Europeans, the, the, the dichotomy is quite... Right. Quite, quite unbalanced. So that was what the the the, 
the, the change in administration uh, occurred due to the, um, um, the the Mau Mau rebellion, which was sort of like a, the let's call it a, a freedom fighter movement they call it nowadays, and uh, so the establishment was reluctant to face change. So um, uh, this thing went on from 1952 to about 1956 where you had uh, thousands of British soldiers, you had uh, the RAF out there, you had uh, bombing the forests where these guys were hiding, and basically sort of like a mini Vietnam War going on uh, in, uh, in Africa. And uh, in the end, when you when you look at it, um, the, the people got their, got their way, uh, actually through, literally through, through the, the, the ballot box. And uh, when independence came, they voted, you know, they stayed here, yeah, stayed in the Commonwealth and, and uh, become uh, a republic. But uh, the, uh, what's it called, the, the, the people who fought against the Mau Mau, the, the security forces, um, basically because there wasn't enough soldiers to go around. Was, at the same time, Britain was fighting a, a guerrilla war in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And in uh, um, other places in the world, you know, even places like Aden and uh, um, uh, Syria and things like this. So um, the country became independent, and the and the government became a majority ruled by the by the African uh, people. And so we sort of like thought, well, since Dad had been uh, co-opted into the security forces as a reservist, his name was on the blacklist. Which meant that uh, it, it wasn't like a, a, a blacklist you might think of as being so. You know, someone's going to come around and cheerfully murder you in the night. Their 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 version was right. You're in the security forces. You can take four hundred pounds and leave, and you leave your your farm, your, your car, your, everything behind. So basically, you you you're sent out destitute unless you get out and find a willing buyer. No one was willing to buy. Ah. So we said, well, let's, let's get out and move somewhere else. Uh, so we wanted to go to, to Australia. My uncle, who moved up before, he, he'd actually sold this farm and got out before the emergency um, thing had, had occurred. And uh, settled down in Australia in Bathurst, had a farm, was all happy as happy. And uh, he took all his farm machinery with him, took all his tractors, took, took everything with him. So he was literally welcomed as a, literally a farmer waiting for a farm. Mm -hmm. he, he wasn't some sort of dest, destitute refugee saying, here, give me some money so I can right, get right. Okay, so he'd done the right thing. But for us, um, we we couldn't get into Australia because in those days they had a, what they called the white Australia policy. Um, and they sort of said, oh, no, but you're a colonial. You, you, you're not white. You came from the Seychelles. So we were sort of like, you know, well, what can we do? So, well, if we go to England and join all the other Yugoslavs and, uh, and Greeks and all the other people who've been displaced by the war and say, yes, I'm willing to come and work in Australia and I'm white with you know, white descent, you were just one of the crowd. But there was no guarantee that we'd get that, that, that uh, application accepted. So we literally said in the end, okay, let's go to New Zealand instead. And New Zealand didn't have a it's sort of like a, a, a let's call it a non-white band, <laughs> 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 way of putting it. 
And so we settled in, in, in New Zealand and uh, the family landed there with 10 pounds. Basically spent all our money on the on, on getting on the ship and getting us across. So you know, on, on the, we landed on a Saturday. And on the Monday, my elder sister, my mum and my dad were all working. Oh, wow. So that's uh, sort of like a, since then, the whole families all got their own houses, all settled down, all worked, worked hard, and uh, basically, so sort of none of them ended up on the dole doing nothing. And so um, we made a good life. It worked so. out. Yeah. yeah. I, now, I know you're in Australia now. How long did you stay in New Zealand? Uh, well, we were in New Zealand from 1964 till 1989. Uh, well, me, 89. My parents came over to Australia in uh, 2000. So, um, there's a bit of a change in uh, in welfare uh, for old old age pensions like this in Australia. It's a much better system, so um, they sold up and, and moved moved over here. But uh, my dad couldn't get Australian citizenship because they changed the laws in uh, in about, of course, it was 1999, whatever. One of a bit of bit of there's a, a, a year that they changed the laws. It said you couldn't get Aussie citizenship um, from New Zealand, even though you got uh, New Zealand citizenship while you're living there. So um, when I come over, after two years, I applied for Aussie citizenship, bang, I was an Aussie. But uh, for them, he applied and basically he got his citizenship on his deathbed. Oh, my. Yeah, that's, wow. uh, you know, have to have the, 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 the citizenship act read to you literally on your, your life there on earth. Um, respected him. So, what what kind of work did you wind up doing? Oh, well, I'm a, always been a bit of a tinker with things electronics. So I played with radio uh, when I was a boy and uh, created my own radio, which uh, disrupted all the TVs in the in the, in the neighborhood. So, this guy rolled up one day with an axe and put an axe through the bloody thing. And uh, that was the end of my little effort. But I thought, well, I'll, I'll keep going on this and join the Air Force as a radio technician. So fixing airplane radio was taught to me. And then uh, later on, it moved to electrics, radar, um, instruments. And so I became a, a more broadly uh, um, educated uh, technician. And uh, in the end, it's sort of like, a, it's called a jack of all trades, is the best way to describe it. Okay. Now, at, at some point in here, you decide to to write your book or something happens that makes you decide to create a book? Well, I was in the Air Force, I was posted to Singapore for two years. And in Singapore, it's a bit of a different world. And uh, for the first time in my life, I said, oh, I'll keep a diary. So I have this little squinty diary about the size of it, you know, the size of this camera. This was it, Matt, my little weird incidents that went on in a foreign country because you there's always strange things going on. So from that became the, the core of, uh, in the year 2012, when I retired, uh, finally, and got my, my old age pension from the from the Air Force again. Um, it, it meant that I could literally sit down and do, do what I wanted to do without, without, without worrying about work. And so I uh, started writing then. And it took me till about 2017 to to get the thing together. That was the first book, and uh, um, 
writing an autobiography, you write about your the things you know. You write about the stories your parents told you. So mm -hmm. probably I expect my my dad to live forever, and my mum to fall off the perch. But uh, it, it happened in the reverse direction. My mum was the one who remembered everything down down to the last detail of bloody you know, everything. And uh, she felt she she died first. Dad sort of like it'd been very hard to get stories out of him. The the war had seriously damaged his um uh, PTSD, let's call it his uh, ability to remember, his wanting to remember, still upset him a lot. So when a, a child comes up to his dad and says, Dad, Dad, how many Germans he killed the war? You know, sort of well, shut up, damn kid. Um, <laughs> eventually you you mature enough to start realizing, shit, it wasn't a good thing. The war wasn't just popping away a bloody, you know, knocking off targets on a, on a rain. It got to me when uh, Dad gave me a gun one day. He says, here we are, we just stop by the road. There's a there's a, uh, a buck over there. There's sort of a pile of buck among them. He says, well, pop one off. And I look at them and says, they're beautiful animals. They're... They're beautiful, there's no other word for it. They're, they're, they're uh, works of art. And I couldn't do it. I just, you know, dad, I couldn't, I don't want to do it. You know, I'd be popping off, you know, little pest birds on the farm for years uh, with my air rifle, you know, little fat pigeons and little uh, uh, hawks that they were chasing after the chickens. But uh, mm -hmm. quite different. There's a, an animal that's doing no offense to me, it's no threat to me. And uh, I, like I said, I just, you know, I thought, no. I don't like that. I'm not. Dad can bring home the, the, the <laughs> bring home the deer meat, and I'll eat it. But you know, it's like when you go down to the piggery and said, "Right, here's a knife." You know, fuck <laughs> <laughs> you, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so uh, I like my bacon. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I mean, you had so much material. I mean, I'm talking about you know going back so many years to include all the things that happened to your parents as they came through all these different countries and situations. How did you decide to format it more like a diary? Well, it's, it's when you write something, you write on a, on a paper, you just get a, an A4 um, book and just the truth. Mm -hmm. so that was what you sort of Maybe you know, just the, the memory of, of the of the moment. You, you write it down, and okay, uh, I'll just pick pick something out of out of the air. Mm -hmm. uh, last week we went and did some uh, some uh, meeting with with one of the family we hadn't seen for years, so we had, went out to dinner. So you write down. You know, we went to the Greek restaurant, had a marvelous meal. You know. One person had the old the trots from it, and no one else did. You know, so what did they eat? Why I didn't eat, and little things like this. You sort of you, you write down in a nutshell all the incidents. But the thing is, that if someone asked you that about it six months down the track, um, yeah, did I go? Yeah, we went to a restaurant. I think we went to a restaurant. Um, how many of us were there? Uh, yeah, you, you, you sort of you, you lose that memory unless you write down for. The core occurrence. So um, remembering things for me is uh, I'm terrible at names. Uh, I, I get introduced to twelve people, and uh, yeah, I know that face, know that one, yeah, know that one over there. Uh, uh, let's say again. You told me his name last week. 
Hello, Kerry, how are you going? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just fumble your way past and hope. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. So, so when did you, you wrote the full book, which is the, the hundreds of pages. When did you get the idea to create three smaller books? Well, the, the the early part of the book is sort of like very pedantic because it sort of um, describes what goes on in a small island with not much happening. Then you sort of got the war going on with Dad, so I dragged out of it very reluctantly. And uh, then they got stuff from Mum, which came in screeds. But uh, if someone is not family, that's... If I say boring as batshit, um, the 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 if for a member of the family, yeah, I'll be riveting. But for someone else, I said, mm, yeah, okay. Then I come to my Air Force stuff and my motorbike stuff and all my motorbike chapters. Yeah, to really bore us of all that stuff at the beginning when you could have, you know, just literally dove into it and said, mm, yeah, you like it, right? So, um, I've stuck poetry. In, everywhere because poetry just happens to be something I find uh, come, comes naturally. Mm -hmm. So the book's got poems stuck through it. And I thought in the end, ah, oh, I should really put all the poems together in one lot. Counted them, there's over 80 of the bloody things. So I thought, oh, Christ, um, better make a book of poetry. And so I better do something with motorcycling. So I'll, I'll, I'll literally slice and dice. Very similar to when you look at Lord of the Rings, you've got the, the two towers, the third of the king, whatever they be. Um, each one deals with a, a, a sub a sub part of the whole thing. So if you're not interested in more hobbits, you can more you know, war with orcs and shit, buddy, you, you, you go and look at the you know, volume two, or pretty for volume two. Um, so that, that sort of thing. The separating it into bits that are more easily uh, absorbed by a, a category of people than your name right. after that category. So when I put right. I mean, it's it's like a, having a target a audience, Terence. Yeah, you're so looking at a target yep. in front. Uh, mm -hmm. People with might might be interested. So maybe well, we are interested. Did did you pick out a couple poems that you would share with us? Yes, I did. Um, yeah, you, you, you've got to sort of look at uh, each each poem has, has a, a specific subject, a specific uh, idea, and dives quite deeply into that particular subject. So, um, for your entertainment, I can pick, uh, I've got one here called Mother's Day. Okay. I love my mother very much, and uh, it's, it's a fairly long so if you don't mind, I'll just uh, scrub through it. Mm -hmm. uh, Mother's Day. I first reached out in wonder to suck upon her nipple. Heard her heartbeat thunder as warm milk flowed in ripples. My fingers felt the texture and the fullness of her breast as she laid me on her stomach in a greedy, gulping fest. My body thrilled and trembled at the softness of her lips. I felt I was in heaven when death dangled on her hips. She helped me get my back legs to go the same direction, to get to where my hands went, the place of my selection. Ups and downs were tragic, found her loving, helping hand. I thought that it was magic, when at last I found I could stand. If I fell upon my ass, 
or chants to skin my knee. Her caresses and her kisses would set all my troubles free. I got so close to crying till she pushed me on my swing. Then I thought that I was flying with the giddy swooping plumes. She answered all my questions as fast as fast can be. Mum said it was like using a spoon to fill up the sea. She helped me learn the ABC. I almost came a cropper. Till that thrilling day came as I wrote my name on paper. She counted thumb and finger to sit upon the power, to fumbling my way forward with understanding maths. She said, part your lips and pucker, just like nibbling on a thistle. Till at last a wondrous moment when I found I could whistle. I lost the wheels of training and found the sport I lost, listening to her puffs and straining to balance on my body. It almost had me crying as I faced first day at school, till her quiet voice beside me said, The uniform looks cool. Whereupon, so whenever I was weeping in deep and dark despair, her loving arms were reaching to show me love and care. Why is it such a wonder when we kids reach high school? To be seen out with your mother, your friends think it's uncool. There's only nature's cycle, it just happens to us all. We forget our many foibles and our mum's love don't recall. We think that all that's new is so much better than the old, that the loving little kid she knew is now to her so cold. The rising generation say their folks know bugger all. The same across the nation, the teenagers siren call. Not till we've become a parent after many years have passed does the real become a parent of what is the mother's past. You'll have to stand in her shoes to help a child of yours. You will only lose your arrogance if you can show remorse. On the day you say you're sorry to the mum who loved you long, he just smiles and says, don't worry, I also once was young. Very nice. I, those memories from your very, very early childhood, I'm amazed you remember them. Well, my mum remembers, and she told Ah, okay. Ah. Okay. <laughs> There's the key. <laughs> That's, those are such uh, intimate details about things that I just I just can't imagine children were aware of that. So thank you for the, the secret. Your mom remembered. <laughs> Ask your mom. She'll tell you. Yes. <laughs> what, what, uh, what did you bring from your Air Force dates? Well, comradeship is the right word. Um, when you have 3,000 people all working together in a team where you all have to trust each other absolutely, and you've got some idiot in the plane getting in there saying, yes, I trust that, Terry. He's done the work right. The wings aren't going to fall off when I take off. Well, when he can trust you that much and he goes up, well, what we used to have is a very cunning scheme in the Air Force. The guys who worked on the aeroplane, they invite them to come up with them on the test flight. Come with us, Terry, and if the wings fall off. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you pick a poem from that that volume? Um I can. I'll just I'll just quickly I'll just quickly that big one up. Um uh, Oh, 
sure, but if I just do my kind of selected on him, then he's on my memories more advanced. Okay, here's one called the Joe Room. The Joe Room is the uh, the the little room in the hangar where you sort of go and wait for your plane to come in uh, oh, okay. flying. Mm -hmm. There's a place at which we gather when our asses need a rest. It doesn't really matter, the whole setup looked a mess. Though the couch is battered with half its cover ripped, if I tell the truth, it was rescued from the tip. The fridge is leaky, old and rusty, has a dodgy door. Carpet is all threadbare, with moth holes by the score. The pinups on the walls are, are faded by UV from the sun. Likewise, the ancient comics with half the covers gone. The speaker to the line hut was already old in World War II. Roof still has the suit stains from the old Billy's room. It's a quiet room for tired lads, their tired souls to rest. To joke and laugh the day away, it surely meets the test. If walls can speak of brotherhood, of mateship and of pain, they could tell a thousand stories, crack bad jokes once again. It's where the young and, and ignorant could learn a sense of pride, transforming into teammates who stood strong side by side. You could touch on any subject of pride and of remorse, for in these walls were trusted mates who listened to your voice. If you won a game of uckers or had courses celebrate, it didn't change your status. These guys were all your mates. At any time you needed help, felt sad or wanted cheering, the jokers in the Joe room with jokes would have you grinning. It all came down in spades amid the smiles and corny jokes. You really were good mates with all these girls and blokes. When the voice came on the speaker, the planes were approaching fast. We all got off our asses, but our Joe time rest had passed. Cool. I like that. There's something about camaraderie that, that you've spoken of a couple times in terms of what it was like to be in the Air Force and, and do that work. Um, what about motorcycles? Well, <laughs> I can dig up the things in motorcycles too. Um, uh, 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 it's, it's it's called Hell's Angel. Oh, okay. <laughs> Bob's engine blew up in a thick cloud of smoke. On his way to the rock crest, he was a sad bloke. But Mario's bike shop was just down the road. So he opted to push it. It didn't need to be towed. They just said, just leave it here. You don't need to worry. So Bob to the rock crest then left in a hurry. Way down in the valley, loud rock music was belting from the old woman group, the Sisters of Satan. Bobby had heard stories. Friends all swore it was true. These girls who'd do anything, with birds or with dudes. Young Bobby got lucky. Five girls who were bent on showing him heaven in their communal tent. Early next morning, he crawled out of a sack, left totally exhausted with a bloody sore back. Back on the hilltop, the bike shop awaited. To pay for his repairs, our Bobby intended. But Mario was waiting, looking most woebegone. For the previous night, Bob's bike, it was stolen. With no papers signed, it was all true in this instance. Bob had no insurance. Mario stoutly insisted. But just down the road, the two poor Bob's group. Angelo's bike hire. 
a sign carved in relief. What a coincidence. There was a bike there, just like his own, a Bobby could swear. With shiny new paint, fresh, clean and white, Angelo's bike hire decorated both sides. To go for a test ride, young Bobby intended. Sorry, young Bobby mentioned. But to come back and pay, he had no intention. Bob failed to notice in his hurry to take it. Fresh paint had trickled onto the shoes of the brakes. Off down the hill, he went at top speed. But stealing his bike back, he was doing the deed. His speed had built up, going well past the tongue, till at last he intended to try to slow down. He pulled on the brakes with might and with main. The paint on the brake shoes made his efforts in vain. At the base of the hill, a bonfire was burning. At the speed he was doing, with no chance of turning. In a shower of sparks, with fire and smoke, he lost eyebrows and hair and most of his clothes. His skin it was black and was soaked with ash, as through the inferno he passed in a flash. As a tent stopped the bike, his eyes were all red, with the smoking remains of the hair on his head. Right into the tent of the sisters of Satan, there rode Hell's angel, the sisters were certain. For the fire and flames that torched off the paint, excepting one word in grey letters, quite faint, the word had said angel on the side of the bike. As the five girls awakened in a hell of a fright, Bob chased them screaming in this painful disaster, but their bare ears departed, darting faster and faster. Where the sisters of Satan have gone is a mystery. As for poor Bob, his skin is still blistery. It said on this day a new girl group formed, who sing gospel songs like Christians reborn. So if your prize bike should depart in the night, see Angelo's bike hire. He'll soon put you right. That is an adventure to have that. Uh, I that's just a visual. What a wonderful visual of seeing him go down that that slope, completely out of control, no way to stop, and go right into a bonfire. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Really pretty wild. So, so you, when we spoke before, you told me there are different kinds of bike groups that you participate in. That there, there's some that are very, um, you know, we have different places they go to or different kinds of things they do. Well, the 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 people who are loving bikes are very similar to people who love cars. You've got uh, sports car enthusiasts who sort of like uh, polish up their their cars and get out on the racetrack and and uh, burn rubber all day. And the other ones who sort of polish their cars sort of open the garage door a crack and if there's a drop of rain or dust inside they close it again and say ah no i won't go out and uh, i belong to one mob of each type so the mccoy towns mob and uh, they're per se nice lovely blokes who love polishing their bikes within an inch of their lives and heaven help the factory they come along and said wow this is better than a leopard factory it's so clean it's, it's unbelievable uh, when they have their, their show once a year, um, there's over 100 bikes from, from this group and uh, people show their bikes off with great pride and they have prizes and everything. The other mob, they get out on the road 
fresh the ass off their bikes, and I tried desperately to keep up with them. <laughs> That's uh, is there is there yet another group? I mean, are there does the price of the bike matter? Uh, not really. It's um, it's really to do with uh, mental attitude. If, if you're if you're participating and doing something on the road with people who've all got similar bikes, similar performance, and it's your skill that keeps you in the running. Um, it's not to do with you know getting a super fast bike and just blasting off in the horizon at 100 miles per hour. It's just sort of like doing something with them and everyone's got the same skill set. And uh, for me, I've always, I've raced bikes for years, and I get out in the racetrack, and I'm not a guy who wins, and the guy goes out and enjoys himself. But I haven't got that that bloody the big balls, the the the, the desperation, the courage to get out there and put your life on the line and say, no, I'm, I'm going to win no matter what, even if I fall off and break my arms. I'm out there, and I'm enjoying myself, coming mm -hmm. around. And having a day out. They are. That makes that makes total sense to me. I wouldn't be out there trying to break break my arms either. My my claim to thrill is those those domes that the motorcycles go around in. You know, they're like a two or three stories, and they go up and down at great speed. And I always remember how it disturbed me. They don't have any insurance because it's such a dangerous thing to do. So, you know, that, that was my impression of motorcycles. <laughs> well, I remember when I was a child watching, uh, they called it the Globe of Death. The steel yes. globe about 15 foot around. And basically you had two bikes in there whizzing around and doing horizontal and vertical stuff. But then they put the bloody lights up and all you could see was the headlights. Ah. Whizzing around this bloody steel globe and you sort of, what the hell? <laughs> Yeah, but, but I look back on it now with my knowledge. It's no different from from uh, riding on the road. You know, you've got the headlight on. You know what you're doing. You're outside of these bloody lights going up and down and sideways. And you're, Holy crap! But you know, when you know what you're doing and you're careful about it, and you've got a reliable bike, and you and you're literally working within your limits, fine. Yeah? It, it's a skill set, as you say. You oh, develop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So with all this going on, where can people find your books, Terrence? Uh, Amazon and uh, um, let's get them all again. Just uh, uh, Book Trail Agency. So um, you can get you can get in the form of an ebook or a soft cover or a hard cover, but. Uh, um, all I can say is if you get get the ebook, if, if, if you like it, get a hard cover. But if you if you're poor, if there's a, the price of a Mac is me, or you can get a book when you have to do it or whatever. Do you read ebooks yourself? No, nah, um, really, sort of like uh, I've got a dumb phone. Uh, uh, well, I've recently upgraded to a, a smartphone, but it's been dumbed down to, to my level. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the old old generation that used to pick up something with a bloody landline attachment. And, oh, look, mobile phone, I can move it around. <laughs> <laughs> we get used to those, right? 
Yeah. Well, Ter <laughs> Terrence, is there anything else you'd like to add to your your tales about your books? Well, um, every every poem comes from a germ, comes from a, a, a spot in, in time and space. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, the biggest worry when you're an author or or a poem, a poet, should I say, is you've heard something from someone else and unconsciously you pluck some someone else's idea, someone else's turn of phrase. Yes. If you listen to what I, how I talk, it's like, yeah, oh, he, he's he's read bloody Shakespeare, he's read this, he's read that, because the, the, the group of words, the form of words that I use, uh, are reflective of my education. Um, some guy who came out of the blooming, uh, let's call it sort of like a, a third world school somewhere with a, a bare, bare minimum of, of English, but learned English as a learned language, mm. uh, using a dictionary, because my 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 way of learning English, when I was small, I was only speaking Creole, uh, then went to Kenya and I had to learn Swahili to talk to the natives. Then I went to school, so I'd learned this third but terrible language called Indian. So <laughs> my, my method was to literally open a, a, a dictionary at random and learn all the words on that page every day. Oh my. So I've got words that sort of uh, nobody uses. <laughs> I've needlessly learned words like aphrodisiac and you know, <laughs> whatever, and you're like, what the hell is that? And it's got the wrong word. <laughs> um, but the the, 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 the intention was, I've got to learn this language to the extent where I've become familiar with it mm -hmm. and able to talk to people. So it's the only way I can think of it. And uh, well, it worked. But uh, um, <laughs> in the Air Force, I was, I, was, I was terrible because every time I wanted to do a crossword, they banned me from the door room. Ding, back, get out of there. We were doing the crossword. And they'd do the crossword and come back. Hey, Ding, you can't, you can't figure out this. Oh, that's. Uh, uh, Funamble, yes. Well, how do you know that? <laughs> it just means someone walks on tight ropes. <laughs> you know, you know, who, who the hell learned, learned the word funamble? And the answer is me. <laughs> and so, like I said, they banned me because deliberately because I just knew the crossword. And, and too easily, too easily, too readily. Yeah, it was it was on the tip of your tongue while the rest of them are searching for the answer. Yeah. Yeah. So but I, I get that. Got, well, the world has got its revenge because my 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 better half is better at bloody crosswords, <laughs> and she's <laughs> a, a, a great player of um we call that uh, game with the, the 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 words and the, the tiles and Scrabble. Scrabble, yeah, she's bloody yes. Scrabble genius, and sort of I'm, I'm always getting my ass kicked by her all the time. <laughs> it's good to have a, a partner like that. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you, Terrence, for spending some time with us today. You know, your stories are delightful. Um, let's remind our listeners that we've been speaking with Terrence Dingwall about his books, The Tome of Ding and The Tome of Ding Poems, uh, which are available on Amazon. I think you said Facebook, um, Ex Libris originally with the first book and now Book Trail. Book Trail. Um, yes, is that the Book trial agency, actually, was. And as we've been, I, we're going to bring this in for a landing now. Um, so thank you so much for being with us. And to our listeners, as I said at the beginning, 
if you have a story that you want to get out as a book or or a dream that you really want to make happen check out my course at www.dreamroadmap.com and it'll help you get started right away uh, it's really the basics of of how we build our dreams so bye for now and have a great day everyone <laughs>